Hi, everyone. Welcome to your San Diego News Fix. I'm Christy Totten. The San Diego Police Department has released new guidelines for how it will handle peaceful protests and unlawful gatherings. We'll talk to reporter David Hernandez about that. We'll also highlight community voices from our opinion section, including non-binary San Diegans, a representative from Airbnb, and a high school student who did something very unusual for her age. First, the news. The San Diego City Council and its housing authority agreed Monday to distribute $92.2 million in rent relief to tenants with financial stress due to COVID-19. The rent funds are from a federal source, and they'll be given to renters whose household income is at or below 80% of the median income, or about $64,700 a year for an individual. Renters must prove their household lost income due to the pandemic or had significant health costs. Renters should be able to apply around March 15th, and most money will be sent directly to landlords. The city of San Diego appears to have paid above market rates for two hotels it purchased last year for $106 million. The hotels were purchased to house the homeless. According to an analysis by the San Diego Union-Tribune, the residents in Mission Valley cost taxpayers $67 million, or just under $349,000 per room. That was the highest per-room cost of any hotel sold in San Diego County last year, and it was based on pre-pandemic prices. Hotels elsewhere in the region sold for as little as $25,000 per room, although most were in the low six figures, according to the Atlas Hospitality Group. San Diego Unified is expected to release a new reopening timeline and details of a revised reopening plan at its school board meeting Tuesday. The meeting will be broadcast online at 5 p.m. on the district's YouTube webpage and on ITV Channel 16. The staff will explain the school district's path to reopening and next steps. It will also report on student attendance and participation in limited in-person support services. The district announced earlier this month that it is committed to offering in-person instruction for the rest of its students in the fall. Last summer's racial justice protests put a spotlight on police practices across the country. Locally, San Diegans voted to create a police oversight commission, and the police here ended the use of the carotid restraint chokehold. Now, the San Diego Police Department has new guidelines outlining how officers should respond to protests. David Hernandez covers law enforcement, crime, and public safety for the UT. David, welcome. Thanks for having me. So these new guidelines are at least in part in response to BLM protests last summer and the way that police responded to them locally. What are some of the criticisms of the way that San Diego PD responded to those protests? Yeah, so some protesters essentially decried the way they responded, saying that at times they responded um, with too strong of a show of force, um, whether that be officers in tactical gear or large numbers. Um, And oftentimes uh, they also denounced uh, the use of force by officers. So in many cases, officers use less lethal weapons like pepper balls. Um, and essentially, uh, protesters felt that that was unnecessary. And I know on the other side, police also had concerns about protester behavior. What were they saying? Yeah, so essentially, they, in some instances, ca- uh, painted protesters as unruly, saying that they threw rocks or bottles at officers and essentially acted violently. Um, And they say that that's the reason for their response um, in those cases where they did fire less lethal rounds like pepper balls. Okay, so they have this new policy out posted on their website on Thursday. Um, Can you walk us through what's in it? 
Yes. So it's a 15 page document and it covers quite a bit. Um, it focuses on anything that may be considered a demonstration, whether it's a rally, a sit-in, um, a counter protest, all of these First Amendment pro protected activities. And essentially it, it outlines everything from the planning stages in terms of how they're going to respond to a demonstration to instances where officers may feel the need to declare a protest unlawful or may feel the need to use less lethal rounds, uh, again, like pepper balls or other uh, types of um, rounds. And so essentially a lot of it kind of um, pins a lot of these key duties on an incident commander, which typically is a ranking officer um, and that person is in charge with overseeing the response to a, to, to a demonstration. So the incident commander is responsible for ev everything from the planning stage to those cases where officers may feel like they need to turn to less lethal rounds. Um, and uh, the chunk of it that is really interesting and even contentious is uh, the parts in the policy that address unlawful assemblies and the use of uh, force, uh, specifically less lethal rounds. Essentially, it gives quite a bit of discretion to the incident commander. It does essentially spell out things for that person to consider, including you know, how many people are being violent, what's the level of threat to property and people. Um, all of these are things to consider when police want to deem a protest unlawful. Um, and then, you know, it gives the incident commander also the green light to uh, allow officers to use these less lethal rounds should they feel that they need to. And is this replacing a past policy or is this just entirely new from scratch? This is essentially new from scratch. It does bring together some other policies. So for example, police have use of force policies and other policies that dictate um, what must happen when they use force. So for example, they must document that under another policy. Um, and so this kind of brings together some of those other policies, but it is very much a standalone brand new policy that covers how officers should respond to protests. You contacted community leaders to get their responses. What did they have to say? Yeah, so what was really interesting is that all of the people I spoke with essentially had something different to say um, about different parts of the policy. And um, that said, generally, uh, their main concerns were that the policy lacked a focus on de-escalation and that it lacked restrictions on the use of less lethal rounds. So uh, for example, you know, language that would say that officer, officers officers um, need to use other means before they use less lethal rounds, um, that sort of language. And uh, some other concerns included uh, language that calls for the police department to contact protest organizers to kind of um, figure out how they are going to respond. Some felt like that could maybe put protest organizers in a position where they may be scapegoated if things go wrong. Um, it also, the policy also calls for the police department to consider the composition of the group that's going to protest or demonstrate. And some felt like that was unnecessary as well because it gets at the message of the group or 
their identity. Um, but those were some of the main takeaways. During this process, I mean, were any of the community leaders, well, it sounds like they were not involved based on their reactions to the guidelines, but was there any opportunity for public comment? So that's a kind of a tricky question because to answer because essentially the policy was discussed a little bit during some of these meetings that are held by community groups, um, like the at the time it was the uh, community review board on police practices. Um, so they discussed it, um, and there was an opportunity for public comment, but it wasn't advertised, for example, or promoted, or the department didn't go out of their way to hold town halls to specifically on this topic to collect input. Um, and like I mentioned, you know, some of these community advisory or community oversight boards did discuss it and I guess to some degree provide some input. Um, although that said, the policy was very much in the works um, I guess for lack of a better word, behind closed doors. So, you know, when it was discussed in some of these public settings, um, it wasn't like the particulars of the policy were being discussed, just more of some general thoughts about it. You wrote in your story that the department has been working on these guidelines for seven or so months, you know, since the protests of last summer. Why has it taken so long? Yeah, so it all began actually um, by researching other policies elsewhere. Um, and that helped guide the department well, while they were drafting their own policy. Um, but also, um, this policy went through legal review, essentially city lawyers had to review it to make sure it wasn't going against a state law, for example. And it also went through a review by the police union. Um, so they had to, in a sense, give it the okay as well. Um, and so all of these kind of steps, I think, were why it did take a bit. And again, it, you know, it did turn out to be a 15 page document. Typically I would say policies are about like four pages, if that. Um, so there was a lot packed into this one. So is this guidance final or is there going to be additional discussion? That's a great question. So that remains to be seen. Um, it's final as far as I know, but um, that said, there is um, a community oversight board that um, has said that they plan to review the document and make any necessary, necessary recommendations. So they may review it and agree with it, but um, based on what the chair of that committee said, um, he had some you know, questions. So they very well may make some recommendations and um, it, you know, would be up to the department in the end to decide whether they want to make any changes or not. That's completely up to them. They don't have to make any changes. David Hernandez is our crime reporter at the UT. David, thank you. Thank you. Let's turn now to opinion. Laura Castaneda is our community opinion editor, and she handles essays written by San Diegans outside of our newsroom. Laura, you have a trio of essays up this week by non-binary writers. What can you tell us about that? Well, you know what? It's really interesting, Christy. These are voices that um, are often left out of the conversation. And I also am a parent, and I'm really starting to understand that whether we like it or not, 
um, the subject of non-binary is in our world. It's in our life. Our children are way more comfortable with it than older adults. And so that kind of gave me the idea, like, we need to find out more, you know, about this community and what they're feeling and what they're thinking and what, what matters to them. And so, you know, in searching for some voices, we found these three writers and they all, you know, talk about different um, areas, I guess you could say, about being non-binary. One of them goes, uses the pronoun they and the other two he. And so that was interesting too, you know, because I initially I thought, well, wait a minute, I thought you didn't identify with pronouns, you know, so it's it's part of it is educating ourselves as a people, as a community, you know, even ethnically, um, there's obviously some religions that don't want to hear anything about this, but my, I go, I circle back as a journalist to whether we like it or not, our children have friends that are non-binary, they're comfortable and they're becoming more accustomed to hearing that pronouns matter and pronouns are important. Um, I think unlike older audiences. So I just really think that um, we need to hear more from them. We, we can learn from them. We can, and it's also, you have to respect how they wanna be viewed. And so if they want to use the, you know, certain pronouns, then the rest of us have to learn how to adapt to that. And it's hard. It can be difficult because you might be in a conversation with somebody after they just got done telling you, I use the pronoun they, and you see somebody that might look like a male in front of you. And so you keep wanting to address them as he. And so it's a real education process for all of us. We all have to um, get better acquainted with non-binary voices. You're going to start seeing boxes in the, those little chuck boxes that are going to say he, she, they, or he, she, or I don't want to answer that. And we all have to learn how to respect that. And I think this is part of an education thing. We also have an opinion piece written by Airbnb that's getting a lot of attention. It's in response to a short-term rental proposal by Jennifer Campbell, the San Diego City Council president. Let me just go over a few of the things the proposal would do. Um, it would limit the number of homes that could be rented for less than 30 days to 6,500 citywide. It would limit permits overall in the city to less than 1% of the city's total housing units. It would create a carve-out for Mission Beach, which historically has had short-term rentals. People could have only one license. There would be a two-night stay minimum on any rental. And licenses would be granted by a lottery system. So there is a lot there, but Airbnb is on board with these terms. Laura, what did they have to say? Well, you know, you touched on the points, and I think really what this is about, this is a very touchy subject in San Diego and probably in a lot of other um, vacation destination communities. But I think what is different about this one, it, because this seems to be a very hot button issue where you're either seeing, you know, yes or no, like that's, it. you know, you're not seeing a lot of in between. And I think what stands out in there and what they're trying to say is compromise. Let's find a compromise because obviously uh, San Diego is a prime destination, but once you start reading both sides and, and why people want to try to make this work and why other residents have had enough, there's a lot of valid points on both sides. You know, If you are the person trying to rent out, you're thinking about the income, you're thinking, you know, eventually we all hope that um, after COVID that 
life might resume as we knew it and that there will be travel again and that kind of thing. So you're thinking about a different set of uh, points than an Airbnb, which is thinking about the money and thinking about placement and thinking about safety and how can we work with these individual cities to try to make things work, right? So I think that's what stands out in their commentary is let's try to find a way to compromise to, you know, San Diego is such a hot spot, such a, you know, great destination. But yet again, when you, on the flip side, when you think about the problems that can occur with, um, you know, not trying to blame everything on younger uh, people who rent, or rent, but maybe larger groups who rent uh, near older residents who don't want to be bothered with the noise and the music and the parties or whatever, whatever the case may be. So I think that's what really stands out in this op-ed is really about the compromise and trying to find a way to make it work. And finally, I wanted to talk about an essay you have by a 15-year-old who quit social media, which like to me sounds impossible. <laughs> I was absolutely blown away when I when this came into my inbox. And this is, again, you know, we get a lot of unsolicited uh, op-eds, which we always welcome because people have different things they want to talk about, right? And here's this 15-year-old girl from Cathedral Catholic High School, who just voluntarily says, I decided to give up social media because I was spending so much wasteless energy on it. And she also writes about some of the psychology of it, where, you know, you're checking to see how many likes you have and, you know, uh, wanting to use filters all the time to make your pictures look perfect. And, and there, there was a definite um, confidence psyche part of all that to young people too, you know? So I think she's my hero of the week. <laughs> I think that um, it's a, it's amazing that a young person that age could have the spirit to do something like that. Um, I, I'm a parent of two teenagers and boy, oh boy, do I, I told them I was going to ask them to read this essay and to challenge themselves to, you know, I, I don't expect them to cut it out completely, but if they could just limit themselves, like, you know, self-monitor and say, okay, today I'm going to cut back an hour. I think you can get done a lot in an hour. So I really, really applaud this young lady. Yeah, same here. She wrote, you know, it's a, she looks at it in five minute increments, but that adds up to a couple hours a day. And she's learning French now instead of looking at her social media. So Riley Cox, she's <laughs> a hero. She's yeah. a hero. Uh, yeah, a role model for me too. I wanted to end with a question she wrote in her in her essay. And it's, you know, for readers to ask themselves, what keeps you attached to the screen and what would you do if you deleted your social media? So something we can all think about, maybe learn French. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, Laura. Thank you for joining me. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to the San Diego News Fix. You can find these stories online by going to sandiegouniontribune.com slash opinion and clicking on the commentaries tab. I'm your host, Christy Totten, and we'll be back tomorrow.